Hello, and welcome back to the So Novel podcast. I'm joined today by the author Eva Ramsey for the very first author chat episode. Unless you've been living under a rock, I'm sure you have heard of Eva's debut novel, The Morbids. Eva is a prize winner in the 2016 Newcastle Short Story Competition and has written for various magazines, including the Sydney Morning Herald's very first blog. She's also the operations manager for the Newcastle Writers Festival and is on the board of the National Young Writers Festival. Today, we chat about mental health, friendships, and her role in the Newcastle Writers Festival. Hi, and welcome to the So Novel Podcast. I'm your host, Jess, and in this fortnightly podcast, I will be chatting all things books, as well as interviews with authors, publishers, and bookstagrammers. So whether you're looking for your next read, or you want to know the story behind the story, then this is the podcast for you. Eva, hello, and welcome to the So Novel podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Jess, so much for having me on. It's really exciting to be part of something new and fun. Something different. (laughs) Now, great to see people branching into different media. It is, and it seems to be kind of a a trend at the moment too through Bookstagram. Like a lot of people are kind of starting. I know um, there's a book account, Sophie's Little Library, and shout out to Sophie. She's starting a, a chat, like a live chat as well, and we were only chatting the other day about you know, how this little Instagram platform opens up all of these, you know, new avenues and new adventures. So it's a bit exciting. Yeah, it's great. (laughs) Now, I wanted to start, first question, what are you currently reading? I have literally, I've been in a real reading funk for quite a while. I think um, the number of books I've started recently where I've loved them and then 10 pages in for some reason, I just, I don't know what it is. I've just stopped, I put them down and then I come back and it's a week later and I'm like, I have no idea what happened. Um, and I think I've just been in that I can't concentrate type state. But I did just finish, um, it's underneath my laptop, so I'm going to have a look. It's been a pleasure, Noni Blake by Claire Christian, um, which I really enjoyed. I thought it was, it was a lot of fun, very rom com really nice and and while not completely light and fluffy it was light enough that it didn't require me to think a lot or to put in a lot of brain power which at the moment I really really appreciate and I hope that doesn't sound like a negative at all but it's I'm I'm, I can't focus on anything at the moment that's requiring too much concentration so that one was a really good one to get me out of that reading funk I think and I've got sorrow and bliss on my bedside table at the moment and I've heard so many good things about that so I'm really looking forward yeah so I received um Noni Blake from text yesterday actually and I was so super excited because everyone raves about it that's read it Mm. yeah I've seen so many good reviews so I was like yay I'm not having FOMO anymore (laughs) (laughs) but I've been like you I've been in such a slump like yeah, nothing's just really grabbing me at the moment. Um, yeah, I'm reading at the moment The Survivors by Jane Harper, her new release. Yeah, I was hoping a thriller would kind of pull me out of it. But yeah, I think I've been gravitating as well to something just light and not having to, you know, follow too many narratives and storylines and something that just kind of flows really easily. I think just COVID at the moment's just, Yeah. Yeah, I think there's just so much going on. Like you want escapism, but then it's really hard to even like escape properly. So I think, it, I mean, I know so many people who are, are in the same state and and I know like, it, and it's some, so you feel really bad because some of the books that I've picked up, I've actually really, really enjoyed. And then for whatever reason, I've put them down 20 pages in because it's just, this is asking too much of me right now. And you know, it, it really emphasises that relationship between readers and writers and how sometimes people don't like a book and it's not even about the mm-hmm. book, like, which I know as a writer makes me feel better. So <laughs> yeah. It's nice to to come at that from a reader perspective. Yes, so. totally. Mm. I think like your environment and definitely your mood affects, 
how you interpret books, would you say? Like as a reader, like, you know, if you kind of pick something up and, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm just not in the mood for this, like, you know, the writing's really well in that and I think, you know, I need to put that aside for, you know, the right time. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And I think the other thing I have a lot of recently because, I mean, The Morbid has been completely finished for about six months now, but I worked on that for, what, four years, four and a bit years, and a lot of that was, like, very intense editing. So when you read another book, there's a part of your brain that is, what would I have done here or how would I have approached this or, like, you start editing it <laughs> and you can't just, you can't just enjoy it. And I think especially with books with sort of similar themes, you, you're, you're like, there's a part of it where you're like, oh, you know, it's interesting what they've done here and there's a part of it like, why didn't I think of that? And it's just, you know, you need that little distance between when, you know, you've finished working on something and when you read something that is vaguely similar. And there are a lot of books around at the moment that are those sort of about women having mental health issues and dealing with that. So it's quite a theme this year around fiction. And so I, I do sometimes approach those books with a little bit of caution because I'm like, don't bring your own work into this. Just enjoy it for what it is, which can be difficult. Yeah, definitely. And I wanted to touch on mental health actually soon. But um, first up, so we're here to chat today about your debut novel, The Morbids, which, spoiler alert, I loved. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But for those who aren't familiar with the book, I was just going to quickly read the synopsis out. Um, so Caitlin is convinced she's going to die. Two years ago, she was a normal 20-something with a blossoming career and a plan to go traveling with her best friend until a car accident left her with a deep, unshakable understanding that she's only alive by mistake. Caitlin deals with these thoughts by throwing herself into work, self-medicating with alcohol and attending a support group for people with death-related anxiety, informally known as the Morbids. But when her best friend announces she's getting married in Bali and she meets a handsome doctor named Tom, Caitlin must overcome her fear of death and learn to start living again. Now, tell me, what was the inspiration behind this book? Oh, goodness. There was no real one thing, I don't think. It started off, so the first thing I wrote was the opening scene in the support group, The Morbids, and I wrote that not even thinking there was a novel in it. I was, I do this thing sometimes where I just start writing. It's not even short fiction. It's just like scenes. And that was one of them. And then um, I came back to it a few months later and I reread it and I went, there's something interesting in this and it's worth exploring. Um, And then I sort of pulled out the character of Caitlin and I, she just sort of took me on this journey and it it sounds really weird and woo-woo and mystical but I it was almost like I I made this friend and then she wrote the book in my head and so when people ask me where the ideas came from I'm like I, I literally I don't know it's like this person just came along and was like this is a story you've got to tell um but there was definitely a lot of of things from my own life, I guess, that I sort of drew on. I worked in hospitality in my 20s. Um, you know, I've had my struggles with mental health and all of that. And, and you know, I so it, that sort of wove into it. And then Lena, as Caitlin's best friend, um, came in as a character. And, and it sort of, it was this very organic process. So that's a really hard question to answer. And I always end up rambling for hours about it. But I, you know, I wrote the first draft really, really quickly and it was completely different to what it is now. And, um, like, I, you know, someday I'm like, maybe I'll auction that off and someone can read it and be like, oh, really? That happened? But um, my sort of process is I work really quickly, but I work, it's sort of like peeling an onion. So I'll do a draft and I put it aside for a couple of months and then I come back to it and I rewrite it and put it, put it, and every time I'm like building on that story and, so things will come in that weren't there before or things will, will come out that didn't need to be there. And it's almost like like bringing it back to that analogy of making a friend. The, you know, it was like Caitlin was someone that I'd met and we met and we had drinks one night and got a bit tipsy and told each other our fabulous life stories. 
but they're not always the most interesting stories that first time. Like they're the ones you tell to impress people and then we'd go out and we'd have coffee a few days later and I'd find out something more about her and and every single edit and every single draft was like me getting to know Caitlin and her life a little bit more until we sort of actually got to the essence of who she was as a character. So, yeah, again, haven't really answered that question, but hopefully it, you know, it's a bit of a look into the process, I guess. Yeah, no, that's really good because um, I, I really liked Caitlin's character. So it's really interesting to hear that she was kind of, you know, developed as you developed the novel mm. almost, would you say? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think she started out probably there was a fair bit of me in her and there still is a fair bit of me in her, I think, but then she very quickly became her own person who made her own decisions. And as I got to know her, I got to sort of hopefully understand what those decisions are like and why she made them. And I think, I hope that comes, you know, in the final novel, I hope that as a character, she is at least sort of consistent and makes sense. And I know she can be frustrating and prickly and difficult but that is I guess like aren't we all in a way absolutely (laughs) now she attends the group called the Morbids Mm. and any everyone in the group has this overwhelming fear of of death this death anxiety so I wanted to know what kind of research did you have to do to develop this group and this storyline like did you is is this a group that exists or is I this... would hope not in its yeah. current form I really yeah um yeah I don't if there is a group like that and you're a part of it I really think you probably need help elsewhere um yeah. not support groups in general but that one in particular which is clearly sort of a group of people have slipped through the cracks and are really not getting the help they need and almost mm. are feeding each other's anxieties more than treating them um yeah so which is not not ideal but um yeah I I came at that in a couple of ways like in a way my main approach to it wasn't even to do with sort of support groups as such but the the idea of of what happens when you have a a group of people who have nothing else in common but this one thing and you put them in a room together and that dynamic and it's something that's always fascinated me I'm massive fan of survivor I grew up on big brother like I love those weird relationships that (laughs) form in that environment but the other thing it it let me do was I feel like I had such a massive insight into Caitlin's mental health that that was sort of a really interesting thing to explore but just like in reality like I know my anxiety and I know how I deal with that but when I meet someone else with those same issues I don't necessarily understand them like just because you you haven't anxiety doesn't mean you understand all anxiety or you can speak for all Mm. people with anxiety so the group let me kind of explore that dynamic of being in Caitlin's head but also seeing how Caitlin observes other people who are going through similar things to what she is and how you, you can't ever still understand it even if you're on the same sort of path I think you can understand more of it but you know you're never in anyone else's head so having those different perspectives was really great. Um, and I did a fair bit of research into death anxiety, which is a weird, like it's so, it doesn't feel like it's spoken about enough given how sort of common it is. Like, I mean, I've always had this thing where there's a little part of my brain that just trips off these thoughts constantly, you know. I'll be getting the washing out of my washing machine and we've got like a top mounted dryer above it. And I will always, there's always a part of my brain that's like, what if it fell? (laughs) What would happen here? That's me as well. (laughs) Or I'll be pulling out of a side street into a busy, onto a busy road. And I'll always be like, what what if, what if my brakes fail? What if, or what if I come out and like, what if, you know, there's always that moment of what if the worst thing happens? And I kind of never really understood that other people didn't necessarily have that until quite recently. So, and I think it's, but on the other hand, I know a lot of people who have had these thoughts and thought they're the only person who thinks that way. And I think it's such an interesting, going off topic here a bit, it's such an interesting thing about mental health is that on the one hand, there's that part of you that is like, oh, not everyone thinks like this. And on the other hand, it's really alienating and, and you don't, 
you often think that you're the only one that feels a particular way and there's that weird balance. But coming back to the question and the thing about death, death anxiety that was really fascinating when I started reading about it was that it actually ties into so many other mental health issues. Like it can, it's, it's known as, I think it's a transdiagnostic, I can't remember the exact word, but um, it underpins a lot of different mental health issues. So a fear of a major sort of anxiety around death can actually drive alcoholism and eating disorders and PTSD and OCD and even social anxiety. Like it's, uh, can be rooted in a fear of death and, and quite often you'll get people, according to some research I was reading, that would cycle through mental health diagnoses and nothing would, and it was actually sort of until they pinned down the underlying death anxiety that they could actually start to get anywhere, um, which I found really interesting. Mm. And it, you know, yeah. it's, it does feel like the number of people who have contacted me since this book came out and just been like, I have this and I've never met anyone else who does. And I just hit a point where I just really want to be like, oh, no, you probably have. Um, yeah. Because it, you just, you don't, just know. don't know. <laughs> and I think people don't talk about it and hopefully this book gets them too. But it was, you know, obviously also I drew on a fair few of my own experiences not with group therapy, but with therapy in general and anxiety in general and all of that. So, again, research-wise, organic, and I didn't didn't do much sort of formal research, but I was I had these ideas and I sort of knew how I felt, and so I would use that to read a bit more and see how generalised it was and how it worked. Yeah, that's really interesting because. Yeah, I wanted to say that, like, you know, for us here at the moment, this time of recording, it's October here in Australia and it is Mental Health Awareness Month, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I think that awareness has really increased the last few years in relation to anxiety in particular. Um, yeah, for me, when I was diagnosed, it was 12 years ago now, I'd never heard of GAD, general anxiety disorder at the time. And I was a bit the same. I was like, you know, there's a name for this. Like I thought it was just me and this is how I thought. And, you know, I see all these other people walking around and, you know, they've got their shit together, but I don't like, it's just me. And, you know, and it wasn't until my, I went to see a different GP and he picked up that um, I used to tap my feet a lot all the time. And he was like, do you do that often? I was like, oh, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Like, you know, if, if I'm sitting there watching TV, I'm, you know, tap, tap, tapping away. And he's like, yeah, not in these words, but, you know, that's not that's not normal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let's look into that a bit. Um, so it was really interesting to see, yeah, how Caitlin does, you know, work through her anxiety through the novel. Um, you know, she suffers from this death-related anxiety as you said, she she has a bit of a drinking habit, a bit of a smoking habit. She's a bit of a workaholic, you know. How did all of these factors play into developing Caitlin's character and I guess her en- ending as such in the novel? I think a lot of those habits are probably ones I had in my early 20s when looked like I... Again, I wasn't properly di- diagnosed with anxiety until about five years ago, but I'd, I'd seen a counsellor on and off when I was at uni and it was always, oh, you're just having a hard time or else like physical things. Like I remember one sent me off for blood tests and they're like, it's just low iron, you're fine. Um, yeah. But I was working a lot in hospitality and like Caitlin, smoking a lot, probably drinking more than I should have been. And and looking back, it's really, really clear to me how much of that was coping mechanisms. And like Caitlin, I guess I, you know, I was at uni and I took on a part-time waitressing job and within a couple of months I was there six days a week and basically failing uni and, you know, that was my life and those were my friends. And it became this all this escape from the rest of my life for me and and so that was that's something that's very much my own experience, just the way that when you're trying to deal with anxiety but you don't necessarily know what it is, you'll look for things 
to throw yourself into so you don't have to think. And hospitality especially is one where when you're, you know, working and it's a busy night, you don't have time to think. And I think that is something that really appeals to Caitlin and it's why she does. She is such a workaholic. And then obviously alcohol is the perfect antidote for many of these for better or worse and yeah so a lot of that is 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 just reflective of how I coped before I actually sought proper help I think in the and when it comes to I guess the ending of the book um I think what I hope and I mean the the ending is definitely I don't want to give too much away but it's hopeful and it's positive but I think I don't want people to feel like at the end of the book, like Caitlin is suddenly cured because I think she's still got a little way to go, you know, and and I think that there is that thing with anxiety where, you, it, you know, you cycle through it through your life, like sometimes things are pretty much fine and and then something happens and it just throws you a bit off course and you can need more help again. Um so I think Caitlin goes through this journey and she goes through this journey where she comes to understand what is wrong with her and seek help. But she's still, you know, she hasn't quit smoking at the end of the book. She's probably cut back a bit on the drinking. Um, but she's sort of starting to look for healthier ways to deal with her problems, I think, hopefully. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's kind of, well, from my experience, I guess that's kind of was my journey too. It was kind of those little steps to recognize, you know, okay, this is, you know, my anxiety talking. Mm-hmm. This is a habit that has come from my anxiety, you know, and just breaking down those little barriers along the way, you know, especially for us people who suffer from anxiety, like it's anxious to jump into something and go, you know, I've got to stop that, you know, because it, it, like it, you know, my brain doesn't really work like that. I can't just, you know, stop doing yeah. that. <laughs> and it has to be, you know, that habit of, of recognising it and uh, working on it, I yeah, guess. Yeah, for sure. And I think totally lost my train of thought there. Um, I think that is something about getting a diagnosis that is is really powerful and it's a there are a couple of people I've spoken to over the years, not necessarily related to writing this book, but in general who once I'd been diagnosed with anxiety who were like, oh, that's that's all you talk about, all that is, now that's the defining feature of your life. And I wanted to be like, well, it's not really, but it's now I understand something about myself that I didn't before and I can use that knowledge and that understanding to make better decisions and to be kinder to myself. Like I think I've had, you know, a really crappy week. I had a few things go wrong last week and and I have spent a lot of the last week just being like, oh, no, wanting to hide from the world. And before I was diagnosed with anxiety, I would have just beaten myself up over that and been really hard on myself. And now I feel like I have this ability to go, you know what, it's okay to, to lose your poo a bit for a little while it's okay to be a bit overwhelmed um and when you know you get that, that those negative thoughts and that anxiety talking and telling you that you're worthless and you can't do anything I can go well that's what that is and in that way getting that diagnosis is just it's so powerful and it's super like but it's also super scary like you don't I remember not wanting to be necessarily defined by this thing inside me but you know it is a part of who I am and, you know, it's also at the same time a completely normal, regular emotion and that's something I discuss a lot with my psychologist is like, you know, it's a disorder but it is also an emotion. Like it's okay to feel anxious. Like this idea that there's something wrong with you because you feel anxious can lead to problems the other way as well. Like it's anxiety is a funny one in that way because it's, it's when it stops you living a fulfilling life and when it stops you being happy and when it becomes a disorder and it becomes a problem that you need help. But there can be a fine line there sometimes. So, yeah. It's- yeah, for sure. Because I know, like, when I was diagnosed, like, I am that 
type A personality who likes categories and labels mm. and that. So to hear that label, I was like, yes, there's a name for this. And, you know, it's, it's <laughs> you know, not abnormal, I guess, you know, it's recognized. And I think looking back, I've, I, mine is kind of a bit genetic, I guess, in that I could recognize those traits in my mum. And um, I could recognize them in her mum as well. And I was, you know, like almost at at ease, I think, knowing that, yeah, there, there's other people out yeah. there like that. And it's funny because I was having this conversation with a friend at work the other day because she suffered postpartum anxiety and she'd never experienced it before and, you know, was having trouble coping. Um, and she's medicated now and, you know, she said, I, I couldn't imagine going back to that stage again. And I said, well, I'm kind of the opposite. I couldn't imagine living without my anxiety. Like it makes me anxious not having it almost because yeah. it's kind of that drive that gives me the kick. And I know sometimes if I push too hard, there is that big come down afterwards. Um, but yeah, I couldn't imagine living without it. <laughs> Do you ever feel that way? It, yeah, I think it's such an interest. It is something that I struggle to explain without sort of making light of it in a way. But there are elements of my anxiety, which for instance, make me better at the jobs I do. Mm. Because, I mean, I I work in sort of, I work for Newcastle Writers Festival on sort of the operations side. So I'm responsible for, you know, dealing with venues and tech. And the fact, I think that I double check everything and triple check everything. And I'm constantly thinking of all the things that can go wrong actually makes me better at that job. As much as yep. it probably sometimes makes me really frustrating to deal with. I, I recently left a job where my boss would regularly be like, you know, we're going to do this. And I'd be like, what if this happens? Like, I don't want to think about it. I'm like, yeah, but you have to. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to because that's my job to think about it for you. Um, and it is, it can be useful. Like you can, it can drive you to be really conscientious, really attentive to detail, really sort of that perfectionism, I guess. But it's, it's making sure that balances and you don't go, I guess, too far with it. Um, yeah, so I think there are parts of my personality. Yeah, I don't think I'd be the same person if I wasn't at least somewhat anxious. Yeah. And when I'm not feeling particularly anxious, I always find it really strange. Mm-hmm. And I found, I think COVID has been, I wrote a piece in The Guardian about this in a way, but somehow I've become like the COVID friend that is literally like, will be, you know, not will be fine, it doesn't matter, but like these are the stats and this is what's happened. And when this happened in the past, like it was fine. So just because there was a case here doesn't mean we're all going to get it. It means like this is what's going to happen and probably at this point we're okay. And, I've, you know, I've had other, we had those few cases in Newcastle a few months ago and everyone was like, oh, my God, yeah. it's coming. Yeah. And I was like, well, look at what happened in Sydney when this happened. Like we need to be careful. We need to get tested if we're unwell. And I have had a lot of COVID tests. <laughs> yes. But... At the same time, I'm really, it's been really weird not being the most anxious person about something. Yes, I totally like my, agree. I was, I've been exactly the same. I was that cool, calm, collected person in lockdown. I was like, felt mm. like so less anxious. Like I was like, you know, don't feel like there's pressures to, you know, oh, it's Wednesday. That means, you know, kids swimming. I've got to do grocery shopping. You know, I, I didn't have the list to do to make the week go smoothly that it was just kind of like, I'll go with the flow. And I'm not the kind of go with the flow girl. So it was really mm. odd. <laughs> <laughs> I think it has definitely, because most of my day work is sort of in events related things. It's completely flipped how I was working. Um, you know, until, like I said, until recently I was working on weddings and usually the part of the wedding that I'd be working on would be completely finalised three months out and that was the thing. And this year it's literally just been like people are planning their weddings three weeks out and people are moving them and people are cancelling and making them bigger and smaller and it was just, you just had to be like, well, what will happen will happen and it makes it harder but it's also been quite sort of freeing, like not, not knowing what's coming and, and knowing that you can't anticipate everything that's coming. Like 
Like no matter what you do and how much you worry about the world, you're never going to be worried about everything. Like you're never going to predict everything and be ready for everything. So why not just kind of find the enjoyable bits of the ride? I guess. I don't know, that gets all philosophical, but yeah, (laughs) you know what I mean. Yes, yes, definitely. No, I love that. Now let's talk about some of the relationships in the book. First of all, the friendship with Caitlin and Lena, as we kind of touched on before, but I think as a reader, uh, only getting Caitlin's point of view made me a bit biased in that I was kind of Team mm-hmm. Caitlin, and it wasn't until that, <laughs> you know, last quarter of the book where we get more of that um, insight and Lena's point of view that, you know, a lot of us kind of, you know, swing around. But <laughs> tell us a bit more about that friendship and how you developed that. I think that was interestingly because it's become, to me, it's really the, the heart of the book is in that friendship. It was one of the last things to emerge. I think in the first couple of drafts, Lena was, I think they had coffee like one time. She was barely there and she was kind of a bitch. <laughs> and, or I don't know if she was or that was just Caitlin's reaction to her. Um, and I remember my own best friend who I've known sort of probably since high school and we have a very different relationship to that of Caitlin and Lena, but there are slight similarities in some some areas of it um she was one of my early readers because she's a writer as well and the first thing she said was like god I hope people don't think that's me (laughs) (laughs) and I felt I've told this story so many times now but if you're listening back I'm really sorry it wasn't you don't don't think it was um but it did inspire me to think about Lena's character a bit more and whether I was being fair to her and I think it is a that relationship, the way it's reflected in the book is kind of, it's hard to remember, but it's, I mean, we're looking at it from Caitlin's point of view, as you say, and Caitlin is having a lot of issues and probably there is a bias into in how she's res- describing Lena and her relationships and her life because of what she's going through. And I hope I've sort of captured that, like it's that slight unreliable narrator thing of, of where you know, you're really messed up. So you are sort of thinking negative thoughts about everyone else, but it's actually not anything to do with anybody else. Um, But I really, having had that friendship that sort of started in our teenage years and has had those ups and downs and that push, like I'm really fascinated by that dynamic and how that translates into adulthood, especially like I know um, I was doing an interview and someone asked me what my favorite friendship books were. And I thought and I thought and I thought and I said I was going to go away and think about it and I looked at my bookshelves and I realized the only really sort of strong friendship books that I could think of are all YA novels Mm. and but I think there is something really interesting about when you have that friendship that starts in your teens and then moves into your 20s and 30s and how it develops and how like as your lives go in these slightly different directions what happens to that friendship and you know, these, the people that have known you for all those years, they know all your crap. They know all your secrets. It's really like you're actually quite vulnerable. Like mm. if Beth ever wanted to go nuclear on me, she'd have so much dirt. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, you're, you're, it's a really intense, fraught thing, that friendship. And you've been through so much together that, that you know, sometimes they don't, those friendships don't survive just because there's so much backstory there that they get bogged down under the weight of it. And and I think that's where we sort of, when we meet Caitlin and Lena, that's the point they're at, you know, there's all this backstory, there's all this tension and it's not necessarily always clear that the friendship's going to survive and Caitlin, God knows, does her best to blow it up. (laughs) um, Yeah, it's, but I'm just really fascinated by that, that dynamic and I guess it does come from having those those sort of very fraught, very intense female friendships that I think I, I think we all, you know, have those couple of friends mm-hmm. where it's, it's like you're almost family but sometimes you're just like, oh, you know, there's tension there. Yeah. It's not all necessarily hugs and smiles. 
Yeah, for sure. Now, in this friendship too, the girls send each other postcards and I heard that your publisher wooed you with postcards as well. <laughs> Can you tell us that story? Oh, uh, yes. Um, I So I have an amazing agent, Grace, at Left Bank Literary and when we were putting the book out to submission, um, like Alan and Unwin were one of the first to sort of come back and be interested and which dream come true for me because that was I think in my head I don't know always where I wanted it to go but I have to sort of not tell them that because you know they had to make them work for yeah. a little bit <laughs> <laughs> and literally I think the day after it went out on submission Grace was like can you come down for a meeting you know they really really want to meet with you we want to do it ahead of everyone else and you know they're really really super keen and so I did and I got there and Kelly, who is my now publisher, presented me with this little parcel of postcards that she'd had. She, I think, I don't know if they were vintage or she'd had them made, but they were from all over the world. And the staff, Alan and Unwin, like everyone from sort of their sales team to the editorial to marketing and publicity, and we had like written these, like why they wanted to publish the book and what it meant to them. And a lot of people also like put little because Kate, when Caitlin and, and Lena send them, they put these little fun facts at the bottom about the place the postcards from, and some of them did that. And it was like everyone from like the the CEO of the company down to you know assistants and things. And it was I literally was like reading them after the meeting because I didn't read them when we actually met, and I was like in tears just. This is the only place I want my book to be. <laughs> so cool. And it'd be like dream come true, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was it was so and I've still got them and you know, occasionally if things feel a bit rough, I will go and have a read and, and remember what like this book has actually meant to people. And even before it was published, like I feel like that was where I sort of got realized that, you know, it wasn't just that it was a good story or whatever, you know, depending on what you think of it, but but that it could speak to people and it obviously some of these postcards people got quite personal and, you know, told me how they related to the book and and it made me realise that this was a book that could maybe spark those conversations and that has meant a lot. So, yeah, yeah it, was, it was a really intense moment and, and when they actually finally got it I was really really happy and I was always like from that point on I was like yeah we're going to meet with the other publishers and yes of course we want to do we want to make sure that we've got the right exact right team here but also like let's just go yeah (laughs) I've already kind of decided (laughs) yeah yeah and it's been they've been absolutely amazing and everything as a publisher that I could have hoped for I think the, the drive there and the the passion even though releasing a book during COVID Mm. has not really gone to plan. Um, They've constantly, they've done so much. So, yeah, really happy with that decision. Oh, that's awesome. Now, we can't talk about relationships without talking about Caitlin and Tom. So Tom is the cool, calm, collected, handsome doctor who enters stage left and is really the one who gives Caitlin this hope that she's been trying to avoid. Now, Mm. Tom is the complete opposite to Caitlin. You know, he has this background of wealth. He's focused. He's calm compared to Caitlin's chaotic life. (laughs) But uh, they also have this similarity in that they both have their life on hold, just waiting for something. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I... Tom is such an, an interesting character to me. Um, <clears throat> like, I guess, Lena, he's gone through a lot of changes in, in the, light, the the drafting of the book. Um, but, yeah, he, he is your, your sort of quintessential private school guy who then goes to uni and becomes a doctor and his parents are doctors and, you know, he, he follows the path and, and, and that is... It's, you know, I've met a lot of those types through my life. I, I went, I didn't go to a private school, but I went to a selective school and a lot of people followed that path and they're perfectly happy. And, you know, he, he also has the ex-girlfriend that he's been, he was with for nine years from when they were like teenagers and they were engaged and, 
and you know the everything is mapped out everything is perfect for him but he comes to a realization before the book that he's he's maybe not as happy as he should be um and that's sort of where we meet him and you know at that point he has like you say his life is stalled he's he goes to this restaurant every night and reads books and drinks whiskey and you know he's not unhappy but he's definitely kind of in a rut I think and like Caitlin one thing that he's always wanted to do is travel um but as tends to happen I think for a lot of people even when you have the means it's something you just put on hold because you know life reality especially when you're studying something like medicine you know you've, you've you do the degree and then you've got the residencies and the all the other medicine bits that are always beyond me but it always seems like there's another step and another step and another step and you don't really get the chance to stop and take your breath and that's sort of when we meet him he's sort of I guess realizing that that he's had his whole life planned out for him and, and maybe not everything is what he wants and and in a way, while him and Caitlin are from very different backgrounds, Caitlin is, was also, until the accident she had a couple of years before the book, she was sort of cruising along in a similar way. Um, but I guess maybe even more aware of it than he was. Like she was more actively fighting it, you know, especially when it came to relationships before. The, the before Caitlin that we meet is is literally like I do not get involved, I do not get serious, I like have flings with completely unavailable guys because they are completely unavailable in this way I don't have to commit to anyone. And while Tom until recently is sort of, you know, gung-ho about settling down and moving his life forward in that direction, Caitlin's always like, oh, I know this is what I'm supposed to do but it's not what I want to do and sort of, self-sabotaging a little bit because of that I guess um so when they meet each other I think it's I hope that it's a two-way thing that maybe you know it's not like he comes along and and rescues her from her life I, I hope that what comes across is is a bit of a mutual you know he she excites him and gets him thinking about these things in the same way that he gets her thinking about things and that their relationship is sort of something for both of them to to move forward and think about what they actually want. Um, you know, it's always really hard. When, when you're dealing with sort of subtleties like that and you're only really coming at it from one perspective, it's always really hard to say exactly what readers are taking away from that situation. So I can only say what I hope readers are taking away, but... Yeah, I think I think it's it's on one hand it's quite like you know there is sort of a he's definitely from this much more privileged much more comfortable environment but but they're both bringing something to the table and they're both healing something in each other hopefully and maybe not necessarily cleanly because I know I mean Caitlin still struggles with it through the book and and things don't maybe go as smoothly as as she hopes they will. Yes. <laughs> Not the typical love story, no. but I think, yeah, reality as yeah, well. Yeah, I think it's really hard. Um, I mean, I think what, what Caitlin struggles with is is finally feeling vulnerable, you know, and it's a, a, one of Caitlin's main qualities is that she does not like to feel vulnerable and both Lena and Tom at various points in the book, make her feel vulnerable and she doesn't respond well to that. And mm. it's, you know, hopefully as, you know, beyond the story of the book, she sorts herself out in that respect. <laughs> <laughs> now, I do have a bit of a bone to pick with you. So you and I are both from a beautiful part of the world in Australia, Newcastle in New South Wales. So tell me, why on earth did you pick Newtown, Sydney <laughs> for the setting of the book and not Newcastle, okay. us Novos? So <laughs> I, I've i lived in Newcastle for about nine years, but I'm not from here. Um, ah. So it is definitely home and I would never, I don't think I could see myself moving anywhere else at this point in time. Um, I, I love it here. I feel... I feel like interestingly writing this book that is set in Sydney has really 
brought me to a place where I'm now commonly referred to as a Novocastrian, <laughs> which taken a long time. Um, but I, I did grow up in, in Sydney, big bad Sydney. So I, when I was writing this, I, I guess from that early 20s, mid-20s um, point of view, Sydney was a place I was a lot more familiar with. Like I know that probably there are people in Newcastle and scenes in Newcastle that are exactly the same, but I didn't feel like I could be as authentic with those stories. Um, it is very much a thing of, of when I was waitressing, it was in Sydney and, and, and the places. And I didn't walk around at night quite as much as Caitlin, but it was something I did quite a bit. So setting that scene was a lot easier for me, giving that was, you know, I'd experienced it, I guess. But um, as I, I think I t- said to Dan Cox on the radio when he asked a similar question, um, I definitely, there's definitely more Newcastle in the book that I am currently plotting out. I want to say writing, but that would be a lie. Um, <laughs> so, but the book I'm starting slowly in my head. That's exciting. <laughs> now, we touched on it before, but you're the operations manager for the Newcastle Writers yeah. Festival, which unfortunately had to be cancelled this year due to the virus that must not be named. Yes. But tell us, what is your role in the festival and what can we expect for 2021? Oh, gosh, good question. Um, I can't give you any insider information. I, I think we are still waiting and seeing a little bit with what happens with COVID. Obviously, we cancelled this year three weeks out. So when you do that, I think you are always going to feel a little bit gun-shy about starting up planning again. You know, you don't want to, and especially seeing these little outbreaks and, and watching what's happened in Victoria over the past few months, it's it's really hard to, to commit full steam ahead to anything on that scale when when you know how hard it is to sort of, have it cancelled a few weeks out and I think that's the same position so many not just writers festivals but music festivals arts festivals like I think everyone I know in the arts and events is is in that same boat of of being like we we're looking ahead but we're not quite there yet because we just don't know what's happening um but yeah my role is primarily sort of so operational Rosemary our director she is our sort of main programmer and she's the vision behind the festival so she is she's always got her eye out for for writers and and you know panels and ideas and things to present and then I am on the team that sort of helps to make that happen so I work a lot with our venues which are Newcastle Council and Newcastle Uni tend to run so I work with those folks to make sure that everything is in place logistically I work with our sound and audio team um, at Scion who are amazing legends if you ever need sound lighting anything call them they're brilliant I don't want this to be an ad for them but the number of times I have rung them at short notice and they've gotten me out of massive trouble I yeah love them they're a great team Um, and then I also look after our, our ticketing which we do online so it's I'm sort of yeah on that logistical operations that behind the scenes stuff that hopefully makes everything happen and if everything is going smoothly, you don't even know I'm there and have any role to play, which is ideal, I think. But, yeah, it's a really fun, really exciting thing to be a part of and I love how even in the years I've been involved it's just grown and become such an integral part of sort of the Newcastle landscape. And it is such a shame we got cancelled this year, but, you know, we sort of I think everyone did. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's it. So fingers crossed mm. for next year. I, I will be there if awesome. I can. <laughs> now, to finish up, I wanted to chat to you a bit about Bookstagram. So first of all, had you heard of Bookstagram before releasing your novel? Uh, very briefly. I I mean, I'd, I'd sort of come across it, but it was really in, in starting to sort of with promotion and stuff, and stuff amping up that my publicist was like, bookstagram, and I was like, great. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but it is such a, oh, it's such an interesting little community and not even that little, like it's so, when you actually start looking at it and 
and getting involved in it. It's such a community and it is so, it, it's like it's quite overwhelming, I think, and, and quite remarkable that so many people go to such an effort to, to create um, this content and to promote books and really champion authors and champion um, writing for, I mean, nothing. Like I, I don't, maybe you get paid, but I feel like it's, a la- it's always like a labour of love. I don't. <laughs> yes. And yeah, it is always for sure. <laughs> so nice to see that as a, like that outpouring that you all sort of have, even if, if someone doesn't love a book, it's always, I think there's very little meanness on Bookstagram. Um, I mean, I read, there was one negative review that someone gave me and I actually said, and that like, I hope the writer's not reading this and I don't think they realized that I was following them and I was like, oh. but even that, they, they were kind and I think there is this, this kindness through that community that that is really evident and everyone is so supportive. It's it's really quite, it's just really lovely. Like it's such a nice little corner of the internet and wholesome. <laughs> I don't know if that's an, a word that, you know, I think wholesome things are great. So I think it is that, you know, it's not, there's probably sort of people who don't love each other and things like that. But, but from the out, like from my sort of observer status, it just seems kind and welcoming and lovely and something it's it's been really nice discovering all the bookstagrammers and having little chats with them and 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 seeing sort of my book connect with them but also I mean you've obviously championed it massively which I'm so grateful for um and you know I I loved it in the beginning when you'd get someone else to read it and you'd be like yes (laughs) Like I'm gonna have to stop <laughs> yes, I need someone things. to talk to about this. <laughs> um, well, that was going to be my question. Like, how do you think Bookstagrams played a role in the success of this book? Because, I mean, I haven't seen that negative review, but I've only ever seen really good reviews that everyone loves it and everyone that gets in contact with me is like, oh, my God, thank you for, you know, talking about that book. Like, I absolutely loved it. Do you think it has played a part in the success of the book? Absolutely. I think especially this year, given I haven't been able to sort of do much in the way of bookshop visits and tours and things um, and festivals. I think Bookstagram is really, has been pretty much the driving force behind it. I think that that seems to, it seems to be a massive part of it. And I love that it's not, I'm going to find, I, I'm trying to find a way to say this that is not going to offend somebody, but um, it's not snobby. It's not, um you know it's it's quite accepting of all genres and all kinds of fiction and and understanding that a lot of people who buy books for example do as much as I think we should all support our indie booksellers as much as possible they do go to Big W they do go to Kmart maybe that's you know budget or that's the only thing available to them and I think bookstagram is a really sort of even handed in that way like it's not I think you can run into sort of book communities that are quite not highbrow but kind of have really high expectations of everybody, whereas Bookstagram is very welcoming to to a sort of, I guess, a broader audience and you don't feel like I've never seen anyone on Bookstagram say, yeah, I bought that book at Big W and made to feel bad about it, like, which I think is great. And I think you, you sort of Bookstagram has seemed to connect more with with just everyday readers and And I think my book, like, yeah, definitely in terms of how it's been received, I think Bookstagram's been huge and and just such a, you know, some of the reviews are so well thought out and so well considered and and have really even sometimes, like, people will say things and I'm like, oh, even I didn't think of that. Like, it's really nice Um, and I think it has obviously played a part like you can just see it when in the comments and things like that like it does promote people people are picking up books because they see them on Instagram um yeah I think it's it's been really great and 
and it's still, I mean, it's been, what, nearly two months now and it's still sort of ticking along there, which is nice and hopefully it keeps doing that a little bit in the lead-up to Christmas. Like, you know, it's it's definitely, yeah, it's good. I'm losing my words. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, yeah, I think, yeah, the Bookstagram community, like you said, they are, it's a really lovely community and I've never had a negative experience, touch wood, <laughs> with the community. And, you know, there's books that I've picked up that I would, wouldn't normally gravitate towards before Bookstagram, um, you know, seeing reviews or even just um, being in touch over social media with authors as well. I think you you get more insight into the book mm. that way and you kind of have that more personal connection as well yeah I I think it's so different I think that's something I didn't really expect when I was bringing out a book because I haven't really had much involvement with bookstagram and I'm a little bit old and therefore a bit old school like it just that the number of people who would just contact me to say hello or to tell me how much they love the book and and how these days an author is so easily accessible like you can reach out to them and follow them on Instagram or follow them on Twitter and and send them a message and I mean I always feel there's a, a couple of really spammy type messages that I've gotten that I I haven't responded to but for them or, or if your name if it's like Dave 43692 probably not going to talk to you <laughs> um, but beyond that I think I try and just get back to everybody who messages me and and some of the messages have just been so nice and people have been really open about their own experience as well, which is, I mean, I super admire. I, you know, it would, I'm, I'm really open about my anxiety and my mental health and everything else I've been through. But I think I look at a lot of people and, you know, in their sort of 20s, early 30s, I think at that age I would never have had the courage just to, email an author and be like this is my experience um and I think it is just so generous as well from the community and and really it's it says a nice thing about about the world and and you know people bag on social media a lot but I think it's it's got its issues and it can make things really difficult but I also think it can create really lovely connections that we didn't have in the olden days I guess make myself sound <laughs> decrepit I'm not that old but <laughs> I definitely didn't have Instagram when I was in my 20s which is yeah <laughs> would have been nice. yeah yeah it would have kept me out of trouble <laughs> now to finish up we kind of have touched on this already as well but what can we expect from you in the future um that is a really good question and it is one that it totally depends on the day as to what the answer is. <laughs> Every time I do one of these and my agent is listening, I'm always just like, it's coming. Um, I do, I have another project that I've been sort of percolating and I've made a few false starts on it over about the past even year now, I think. Like every now and then I'm like, right, I'm going to start this and then I get anywhere between five and 40,000 words into it and I just lose the thread. Um, but I feel like I've sort of, I'm ready to actually do a proper first draft at this point and I've signed myself up for NaNoWriMo. So ask me again in a month and a half and it will either be a really bad first draft or nothing at all. So um, it's definitely not a sequel. I love Caitlin as a character and I love writing Caitlin as a character, but I think she just needs to go away and be happy and get a bit more therapy now and I'm happy to leave her to it. Um, But there are potentially sort of other characters from this book that might be interesting to explore a little bit further. So I'm sort of toying with that idea but what I'm thinking is is kind of more rooted in family, I guess. Um, You know, while Caitlin's family was sort of played a minor but really to me, lovely role in this book. I think the next book is is much more focused on on that side of life, I think. So 
Mm. Keep an eye on it. Sounds That's interesting. Fiction, mum and yes. dad, if you read it, if it ever gets written. oh lovely (laughs) well thank you Eva so much for joining me it has been a pleasure having you and yeah um I will put your Instagram handle in the description if anyone else wants to get in touch with you and thank you for joining me thank you so much this has been great If you enjoyed this episode, please let me know. You can subscribe and leave me a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or find me on Instagram at SoNovelPodcast. Thanks for listening and until next time, happy reading.